This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, which you don't need to turn to, uh, the apostles said that Jesus, when Jesus came, uh, he was full of grace and he was full of truth. He was filled with light and life. He spoke to the sick and he said, be healed. To the lepers, be cleansed. To the sinful, be forgiven. To the discouraged, be of good cheer. To the frightened, be not afraid. To the lame, walk. To the hungry, be filled. To the dead, come forth. No wonder they said that never man spoke like this man. When Jesus spoke, his word was with power. When Jesus said something, he believed it emphatically. He had absolutely no doubt in what he was saying. He never spoke unadvisedly, lightly, or carelessly. His words had impact on men. Peter says, you alone have the words of eternal life. He spoke with authority, not as the scribes, the people said. If we left that there, we would get the image that Jesus was so gentle and nice and kindly and quiet. That's what we would think. But when you read through the Gospels, you'll see another side of Jesus, that he could be very confrontational, that he could speak very challenging words, that he could front up to people, that he could speak his mind. And he did that on many occasions, particularly the religious people. He called the scribes and Pharisees white sepulchers, nice and shiny on the outside, but inside full of rottenness, dead men's bones. He called Herod a fox, sly, cunning fox. He called the scribes and Pharisees extortioners, cheaters, frauds. He really, really could speak very harshly and roughly uh, to those religious people. In John chapter 2, we'll come back to Mark in a moment, but in in John chapter 2, you remember how at the Passover he went up to the temple And he's going to confront the religious hierarchy. Uh, The very first Passover he ever went to, you remember he was 12 years old, and he spent three days sitting with the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple, talking to them, asking them questions, questions, and, and giving answers. And there's no hint at all that he was rude with them or harsh with them. He was just a boy. But they were amazed that he knew so much, that he was so versed with the Scriptures. Yes, he was the Son of God. (laughs) In that sense, he was omniscient. He knew everything. But he was limited to being human. And so he had to learn from his mother's knee. 
But he was bright, he was sharp, and he was interested. And of course, they were the teachers of the law, and he would he'd want to know everything about the feasts and the law and all those things. And so that was a, a pleasant encounter, could we say. But here's another Passover. And Jesus now is a grown adult, uh, and he's making his entrance, as it were, uh, to the world. And uh, he comes to the temple at the Passover time, and you must understand at that time, <laughs> there would be thousands would be meeting and coming to the temple from all over the Roman Empire. Jews that had been living there or proselytes had been coming and they all had to bring offerings. They have to bring an animal sacrifice or even at the very least two turtle doves. And many of them because of the sheer distance they had to travel, it wouldn't be feasible for them to bring an oxen or a lamb or turtle doves or anything like that there. So they reckoned uh, that when they got there that they could buy them. And anyway, these lambs and, and oxen that had to be sacrificed, they had to be perfect. Paschal lambs had to be perfect. No defect whatsoever, or it could not be offered to God. And so the priest would have to okay every animal to make sure that it was perfect. There was no blemishes. And, and so that was handy, as it were. But the trouble was, <laughs> they were making a racket of it. Because when the people came from afar and they had to buy an oxen or a lamb or turtle loves or whatever they needed, when they had to do that, then these guys would be there to sell them at exorbitant prices. They were ripping them off big time. And it was the done thing. And the priests were in on it. The religious hierarchy allowed this to go on right there in the very temple. They didn't care because they were going to make something of it. It was a business thing. You know, whenever there's any festival or anything in the world today, in any city, you know there's going to be people there, and their only aim being there is to make money. They'll set up their booths, their stalls, or whatever. You go to the old Lammas Fair, you buy your yellow man, you buy your dulce, and you can buy a horse or whatever you want to buy. There's always people there to sell you something. Well, sadly, that's the way that had got in God's holy temple. And this angered Jesus. He was really, really righteously angry at the scene here. And so he's going to do something about it. Another thing, too, was uh, the temple tax for the upkeep of the temple. Every meal 20 years and over had to come up three times a year, but once a year they'd have to pay a half shekel, the temple tax. Now, if you came from some other part of, if you came from the Roman Empire somewhere and you came with a coin, Caesar's head would be on it, it would not be acceptable a pagan god to offer that to the, it would not be acceptable and again they knew that as they were coming as pilgrims and so they would buy their shekel but the exchange rate was exorbitant it was sky high again they were ripping the people off who were coming genuinely to worship so you can understand why Jesus is not a little upset here I mean he is just mad he's raging at the audacity of these people and so in John chapter 2, verse 13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple 
and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned their tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, you can imagine... This is Jesus was hardly known at this time. I mean, this is right at the very, very beginning of his public ministry. And you can imagine him coming in there with hundreds, if not thousands of people milling around, all this business going on continually, all the, all the haggling, because Eastern people loves to haggle. So all the arguments and the haggling going, all the noise of the sheep and the cows and, and the stink that was being made, all the rest of it. And Jesus comes into the midst of this. He looks around, he finds some cores, and he ties them together and he shouts at them and he whips out the animals and of course <laughs> those who owned the animals they would run after them wouldn't they because their livestock's going to hit the door their money's going out the door and they'd run after them and then the money changes or the tables would change you'd boot them over kick them over and the coins would scatter everywhere and they'd be running about trying to grab them and of course the people knew they were being ripped off and, and they would be for this. They would be glad that somebody at last has stood up for them, for the wee man, as we would say, in the street. And Jesus was angry. Not just because the people were being ripped off, but they had made God's house a place of merchandise. when it should have been a house of prayer and a house of worship. And so you can see he's really, really upset Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal for your house has eaten me up. A quotation from Psalm 69. And so the Jews answered and said to him, when it says the Jews, by the way, incidentally, when the Bible, you tell up the Jews, invariably it's talking about the religious people, not just the ordinary people, the religious people. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? In other words, who are you to do this? Who are you to tell us this? Show us your sign. Do a miracle. Show us your power. Show us your authority. That's what they're saying. And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up which sounds very cryptic. Now, we understand, of course, what he means because the Bible tells us. But put yourself in that position. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said to them, and they believed the Scripture and the Word which Jesus had said. So here you get a glimpse, Jesus beginning his public ministry, and you get a flash of his righteous indignation. He wasn't just being, this, this, he wasn't just having a, a peak of, of anger, and it wasn't just a, a human emotion here. He was righteously angry. He had a right to be angry. And there's some things, by the way, as believers, we have a right to be angry about. Paul sometimes was very angry. But it wasn't just because he was in a bad mood. There's things that we should be angry about for the right reason. Now, most of the time, we should be, you know, let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt. So most of the time, we need to be gracious. But there's going to be some times 
within our society, we have to stand up for the right thing and, and actually say it, which is not very popular these days. So I said all that because I wanted to draw to your attention, if I may, and introduce you to some things that Jesus said that were so awful, so dreadful, of so great, such great consequence that if Jesus hadn't said it, if it wasn't recorded in the scripture for us to see, I could not, I would not dare to even say these things. But because Jesus did say it, and because the Holy Spirit did record it, then we can't say it, and we need to see it. In Mark 16, verse 15 and 16, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. The authorized version is even stronger, will be damned. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? That doesn't sound like gentle Jesus making mild sure it doesn't. But he said it. He who does not believe shall be damned. What an awful word. And there lies the condition of all men everywhere. Friend, neighbor, loved one, husband, wife, mother, father, sister, brother, son, daughter. If they are not saved, they are damned. Makes you think, doesn't it? I mean, that's stark, isn't it? That's reality. Jesus didn't mince his words. He didn't beat about the bush. Either we're saved or we're damned. There's no middle ground here. No neutrality. I wonder what voice he used when he said that. Angry? Gloating, judgmental, I don't think so. I think he maybe set up with a touch of sadness. Remember Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Knew it was going to be destroyed, but he wept over it. It broke his heart to see what was coming. There was no sense of, I told you so, and I'm enjoying it. No, it was a sense of sadness that it was going to happen because he was moved with compassion. Damned, condemned. Who is damned? He who does not believe. Who damns him? Basically himself. Listen. John 3, 17, 19. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. He's not damned if he believes in him. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation. This is the thing that damns the man. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
plain, clear, no mistaking, not fuzzy, dead straight, saved or damned. You know, a survey was taken in America, and if it was taken in Britain, I'm sure it would be the same. Some time ago, uh, in fact, I preached on it one time, the Aunt Susan theory, where Christians, thousands of them, were asked, your Aunt Susan, she's not saved, but she's a good person. She's a lovely person. Is she going to heaven or is she going to hell? And the vast majority of evangelical Christians said she's going to heaven because she's my aunt and she's a good person. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus said. No matter who, no matter how nice, no matter how good, you're either saved or you're damned. So these were strong, strong words that Jesus used, scary words. Second word is perish. John 3, 14 and 16. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. In case we missed it the first time. He repeats it should not perish, but have everlasting life. What does perish mean? To utterly destroy, to ruin, to cause loss. And it's written a number of places in, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 8. Verse 23, now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. We're going to die. No question in their minds what was going to happen. Same word that Jesus used. Matthew 5. Twenty-seven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus spoke about hell quite a lot, actually more than anybody else. 
Matthew 9. Verse, well, verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined or perish. But they put new wine into new wineskins that both are preserved. And then finally, Matthew 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And it's the same word that's used. So when Jesus talked about those perishing, you get the image here. Destroyed. Ruin loss. He couldn't be more emphatic. He couldn't make it any clearer than that. And then the third word is lost. Luke 19 and 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Another scary word that we need to take heed to. In Luke 15, there was three things that was lost. Remember the parable that Jesus told, a little trilogy of parables. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. The lost sheep was unintentionally lost. It just wandered off didn't intend to be lost. It wasn't his intention to get lost, but it just wandered off. Sheep apparently are not the smartest of animals. And somehow or other, it wandered away from the shepherd and got lost. Dangerous place to be. There's bears out there. There's lions out there. You get devoured. Isaiah 53 and 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. The lost coin, it was carelessly lost. It didn't even know it was lost. And worst of all, it was lost at home. It was lost at home. Many a person is eternally lost at home. When a child has grown up with parents who had absolutely no interest in the things of God, never went to church, never sent their kids to church, never darkened the church door, never been in Sunday school. There's lots of children today in this town we live in that's never been to Sunday school in their life. Wouldn't know a Bible story if you told it to them. It's unbelievable, isn't it? But it's true. Their Sunday consists of sports, shopping, TV, anything but church or Sunday school. The little ten coins the woman had, a little frontlet that she wore in her forehead, 
somehow or other, little chain got loose, little linkage. She didn't attend to it, and it got lost, carelessly lost. The lost son, he was willfully lost. He deliberately, intentionally chose to be lost. He set out from the father's house to make as much distance between the father's house as he could to where he was going to the far country. He got his inheritance. That's all he cared about. Didn't want anything to do with the father's house anymore. He was heading for the bright lights of the city in the far country. He knew what he was doing. He did everything to do it, to get there, and to have money in his pocket when he got there. And he did that, and he got there with money in his pocket. How long it lasted, we don't know, but what we do know is it ran out when he got into serious trouble where he ended up feeding pigs in a pig pen. For a young Jewish boy, that wasn't too good. That was the lowest of the low. But he was deliberately lost. Chose that. And there's lots of people choose to go out into this world to disregard God, disregard the things of God, disregard the house of God, disregard their parents' advice, disregard their upbringing, and just go out and be lost. You hear people saying, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to hell where the parties are. What a stupid, nonsensical thing to say. The Bible says hell is darkness, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. No parties in hell. No company in hell. Completely alone, isolated eternally in hell. Interestingly, the whole Godhead is involved in all these three illustrations. The Son of God, Christ, is the great shepherd, isn't he? The one who seeks and saves that which is lost. The one who leaves the 99 sheep and goes out for the lost one and brings him back into the fold. The woman, when she realized the, lost was, the coin was lost, she got a lamp and she got a broom and she swept all the dark places. Isn't it a botheration <laughs> when you drop something and it rolls underneath the wardrobe or something, isn't it? I mean, of all the places it could go, it has to go underneath the wardrobe. And you're fortunate if you see it going underneath there, but if you don't, chances are you're never going to find it. I lost a pair of glasses one time. I had to go out and buy another pair. Couldn't find them anywhere. Two years later, I was in my shed, and I was going to do a wee bit of gardening. This is a long time ago. I haven't done gardening in years. So don't get too excited, Sally. Now I'm not giving you leeway to give me a note about gardening. And I went to put my wellies on. For some reason or other, I don't know why I was putting my wellies on. And I felt something. It was my glasses was down my wellies. I must have had them in my top pocket one day in the shed. I must have leaned over and I fell down the wellie boots. And of course, after two years, you know, you need a new prescription, so they're no good to me anyway. I can already see other things. But this is like the Holy Spirit who brings light through us to go into the dark places to find 
those who are lost because they're lost in their own darkness and they need to be found. And of course, the father waits for the prodigal to return and he embraces him and he puts a ring on his finger and gives him a robe and shoes for his feet and has a party for him. And the elder brother's outside and he doesn't like it. He hears the noise and he doesn't like it. And the father says, listen, this, your brother, was dead, now is alive, was lost, but now is found. Isn't that lovely? He was lost in the far country, but he's found now. You should be rejoicing. God has got a message for those who are lost, for those who are perishing, for those who are damned. And the message is, you're loved. <laughs> you are loved. For God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Couldn't prove that love in any higher way than giving the best that heaven could afford. The song says, the darling of heaven crucified. Romans 5 and 8, God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were lost, when we were damned, when we were perishing, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. Revelation 1 and 5, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood. Glory to God. Galatians 2.20 He who loved me and gave himself for me. So even though Jesus used those terrible words, words that had great consequence, yet he loved the damned and the lost and the perishing enough to go to Calvary to die for them. And that's what changed our life, isn't it? Because we were lost. We were perishing. We were damned. We're no different. But God found us and in his grace saved us. So you're lost, but you're loved. Here is grace and truth in action. While we were yet sinners, that's truth. Christ died for us, that's grace. Jesus said to Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. That's truth. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. There's grace. Remember the man at the pool of Bethesda? Rise, take up your bed and walk. There's grace. But go and sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. There's truth. Woman taken in adultery was the same. Neither do I condemn you. There's grace. Go and sin no more. There's truth. Seraphonician woman. 
It is not fitting to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. She wasn't a child of the covenant. She didn't belong to the Abrahamic covenant. That's truth. For then grace says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done unto you as you have said. (laughs) The noble man, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's truth. But go your way. Your son lives. That's grace. city of Jerusalem and Jesus stood and told of its fall. You know, Guy and I was there just last week. We stood looking up at Herod's, what's left of Herod's temple. There's a great big pile of stones, massive big huge stones and a big pile. And we asked, what are those? Oh, they said that's when the Romans threw them off from the top. In fact, they're so heavy they busted the very road underneath. Jesus foresaw that in AD 70. Not one stone be left on top of another. Be ruined, destroyed. And so in truth he told that, but in grace he wept over the city. So God wants men and women who are perishing, who are lost, who are damned, he wants them to know that they are loved. He wants them to know that they don't have to be hurt, they don't have to perish. It doesn't have to be that way. Second Peter 3 9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now God does extraordinary things to stop people from going down that road of perdition. He does a lot. He did things for us. I suppose when you look back in our own life and see how God prevented us from doing certain things or going certain places or whatever, when you look back on it, you see the grace of God. It was the grace of God. Amen. In Numbers chapter 22, children of Israel were coming in to possess the land and they came to the borders of Moab. And the king and the people were frightened. Said they're covering the land. They'll swallow us up. What are we going to do? Send for Balaam the prophet. Whoever he blesses, God blesses. Whoever he curses, God curses. So they sent for Balaam the prophet. Balaam comes. What do you want? This people are coming against us. You curse them. And we'll defeat them. He says, well, I'll have to talk to the Lord about that. He goes and talks to the Lord. The Lord says, no, you can't curse what I bless. These are a blessed people. Tell them these are a blessed people. Send them on their way. And he told them that, and they went on their way. But the king of Moab said, I'll go back again. Offer them greater and bigger gifts. Try to buy them. <laughs> so him back again. And Balaam said, if the king of Moab will give me all the gold and silver in his house, I cannot change what God said. But, and this was a big but, but I'll go back again and talk to the Lord. Well, he didn't. He did back to talk to the Lord. The Lord already told him. But there's a wee part in Balaam, you see, that was thinking about that reward. All that gold and silver, really. He'd never been offered anything like that. He'd never been offered a fee. 
to prophesy like that before. <laughs> Long story short, he ends up going with them to Moab. And all the way, God is trying to stop him because he's going down a wrong path. It's going to end in disaster for him and everybody else. So he's riding his donkey. You know the story. He's riding his donkey. And the Lord appears in front of the donkey with a blazing sword. And the donkey saw it. <laughs> and the donkey stopped. <laughs> and Balaam didn't see the Lord with a sword. So he takes his staff out and he beats the old donkey. And the donkey tries to go on. Well, if you're getting beat with staff, you'd try to go on too. But the Lord then stops the donkey again. And the donkey falls up against the wall and crushes Balaam's foot. And boy, he was really mad then. He takes out his staff and he beats the donkey again. And then the donkey tries to go on. And the Lord stops the donkey again. And this time, all the donkey could do was just lie down flat. He had had enough. <laughs> and Balaam got off the donkey. And did he not take that staff out and start to beat the living dead outside of that donkey? And then God opened the donkey's mouth. And the donkey turned around to Balaam and says, why are you hitting me? Now you'd think if a donkey spoke to you and said, why are you hitting me? You'd think at that point you would get the message. Eh? I mean, this is unusual, isn't it? This is way out there. He says, I'm hitting you because you're not a band me. He made a whole conversation with a donkey. And he's still not getting it. He's so mad. He's so intent on going down the wrong path. Even when God uses the donkey to speak to him, he's not getting it. And then suddenly God opens his eyes. Numbers 22, you can read that. God opens his eyes and he sees the Lord standing. And the angel of the Lord, that's, that's the Lord, standing with a flaming sword. The Lord said to him, Let me paraphrase. You're fortunate I don't strike you the way you struck that donkey. If it wasn't for that donkey, by this time I'd have killed you with a sword. Boy, he got the message then, all right. Then the Lord says, go on. But only speak what I say. And he did. He spoke what God said. But then he compromised, and he compromised, and he compromised, and he compromised, because he just couldn't get out of his heart and his head the reward. And he told them away in order to try to defeat the Israelites. But my point I'm making is God went to extraordinary lengths to try to stop Balaam going down the wrong road. God went to extraordinary lengths to try to stop Jonah going the wrong direction, didn't he? Got swallowed by a great fish. <coughs> Colonel Andrew White said God put him in a submarine. <laughs> a living submarine. But there you go. God sent angels to Lot. Lot was compromising, sitting at the gate of Sodom, vaxing his righteous soul every day. God sent two angels. 
to take him out of that place. He went to extraordinary lengths to save Sodom and his family from perishing. I wonder what lengths the Lord went to to save us. I wonder what he saved us from. Maybe when we get to the glory, maybe he'll show us what, he, what we were saved from. Because some of us maybe were on a very good path. Some of us maybe were heading to destruction. We were all going to perish because we were all damned and we are all lost anyway. But some of us might have got there quicker. But the Lord in his grace and his mercy, and maybe through your mother's prayers, maybe through your granny's prayers, the Lord in his grace and mercy came and he stopped us. And he saved us. Glory to God. Christ became our substitute. First Peter 4 and 1, he suffered on behalf of us. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. He suffered as a representative. Isaiah 53 and 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He suffered instead of us. First Peter 3, 18, for God has also once suffered for Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And only Christ's shed blood can save us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That's not a popular statement in the church today. But it's the truth. And no man will be saved without the shed blood of Christ. That is the fact of it. And that's the gospel that we must share. 1 Peter 1, 18, 19. For as much as you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from the aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Somebody says, if you cut that Bible with a knife, it would bleed. From beginning to end, it talks about blood. And the most precious blood was Christ's blood. The most perfect blood was Christ's blood. The most sacrificial blood was Christ's blood. And that's the only blood that's going to save us. Glory to God. Lost, perishing, damned. But thank God we're saved. Amen. Thank God for his blood. Thank God for the Holy Spirit who came and wooed us and won us to Jesus. And thank God for Jesus' sacrifice that paid the price to save us. So here we are tonight. Or here you are listening, maybe on the podcast. And maybe you're not saved. Maybe you're damned and lost and perishing. For the same Christ who saved me can save you. Hallelujah. The exact same Christ. The same blood that was shed for me was shed for you. 
And all you have to do is repent and turn to Christ and receive his forgiveness through the power of his shed blood. And when you do that, you become a true believer in Christ and your life will be forever changed. And then you'll not be lost, you'll not be perishing, and you'll not be damned, but you'll be fit for glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks tonight for your supreme sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you went to that cross and you gave it all for us. We're so blessed tonight to know you and own you as our Lord and Savior. But Lord, we have family members and we have neighbors and we have extended family members and we have loved ones and Lord, they truly are lost. They're nice people and they're good people, but they're lost people. Lord, help us to reach them for you by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the word of our testimony, by the witness of our lives. Help us, Lord, to point them in the right direction, to nudge them along the way that they may have that encounter with the living Christ and then be saved for eternity. So we bless you and we give you thanks tonight for your grace and mercy. Lord, it causes us to be fit for your heaven and to live this life for you on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.